He made fun of your delivery style. <laughs> From their very first jam sessions in the attic at 1203 Ferdinand, Jack and Meg White were intent on doing their own thing. You can see that through the early shows, the singles, the first album, and as we talked about last episode, turning down some of the coolest indie labels around to maintain creative control. But maybe the biggest example to this point of the White Stripes' desire to stay true to their vision at all costs is the making of Distill an album that didn't quite get them on the cover of the Rolling Stone, but did get them mentioned alongside some of the biggest up-and-comers of the aughts. I'm Sean Cannon from Third Man Records and Nevermind Media. This is Striped, the story of the White Stripes. As you might remember from season one, there's a whole lot of preamble before Jack and Meg were actually able to record their first LP. You know, the Detroit Cobras had to get the attention of Long Gone John from Sympathy for the Record Industry. Then Steve Shaw had to send John the first Italy singles. Then they had to figure out a deal with Sympathy and on and on and on. But things were a lot more straightforward when it came to recording album number two. According to Blackwell, for all parties involved... It was the next logical step. I think the first album had done well enough, which in, in the underground indie world is, is, did it do anything? Like, if it just does anything, then, then let's, let's keep the train rolling, was the, the impression that I got. And, and they were motivated and they had songs, and the, and the label had an appetite as well. What that meant was, hey, let's go make a record. And you'd assume that since things worked out well enough at the Detroit studio ghetto recorders for the self-titled album, they'd just go back there. That didn't happen, though. For a handful of reasons, the White Stripes opted to buy an eight-track Tascam recorder and do the album at Jack's house instead. One reason for that stemmed from a short session at ghetto recorders. They did a session, I think, in January of 2000, where they did Rated X... And Jolene, I think, was the recording session. And that, uh, that, the way that session went was the inspiration behind, let's just go do this at home. Like, it took too long. I think that Jack probably wasn't happy with just the, the vibe in the studio and thinking, like, you know, we can just do this. That wasn't entirely new. You know, parts of the first album are recorded there. The first two singles are recorded there. In addition to the general vibe, there were some practical realities that made recording at home a better option, too. In general, it seemed like the, the material at hand uh, was a little less fleshed out at the time. You know, when you record an album, you're booking out time at the studio. It's like, all right, we've got a week. I'm going to take a week off of work, and we're going to block this out. And if it doesn't happen in that week, it's kind of like, well, what do we do? Whereas if you've got it set up in the house... You can say, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Oh, I'm busy tomorrow. Well, the next day, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do tomorrow, uh, the following day after work, that kind of thing. Or for that matter, when an idea pops into your head, you have the freedom to call someone up and say, what are you doing today? Get over here. Which actually did happen. Jack's cousin, Paul Henry Ossie, used to play in a band with Jack's older brothers and was a pretty mean violinist. 
So when the White Stripes decided some violin was necessary for the record... He just called me up one day and said, uh, bring your violin down to the house and uh, see if you can play on a couple of tracks. You know, nothing was planned. I didn't even know he was thinking about using me at all. I hadn't even heard any of the second album yet until he called me up and asked me to come down. That might sound like a little bit of an imposition. After all, you're asking somebody to drop everything out of the blue, hop in the car, and walk into a situation blind. But at least the travel part was pretty easy for Paul. He lived right down the block, so for him, it just meant walking a few seconds. Uh, Even that wasn't without its issues, though. I remember walking down there and knocking on the door, and no one was home, and I thought, oh, I guess we're not going to do this. And I went home, and I don't know, I think he may have seen me walking down the street, and then he called me back up, and I went back there. So uh, everything worked out. And as far as going into the situation blind, well, that wasn't a huge deal either because he didn't have to learn parts or study anything. The plan, and I use that term loosely, was for Paul to improvise some violin parts on I'm Bound to Pack It Up and Why Can't You Be Nicer to Me. At first I was playing kind of uh, crazy stuff, but then he said he wanted it to be very simple. And so I kind of changed the improvisation to make it um, simple and uh, re-recorded it and he liked it. And it was just very, it was just very simple. He just walked down there and listened to the track, played on the track. He was happy with it. And then we just sat around listening to the rest of his tracks. And that was it. And I feel like Paul's experiences there give you a pretty good sense of exactly how laid back the vibe was during the recording of Distill. I mean, it was almost like someone could just come in off the street and wander into the house. Figuratively, of course. And also literally. Now, before you find out exactly what I mean by that, it's important to understand how Jack's house was set up for the record. And when the White Stripes first started, they were jamming in the attic. But eventually, it was the entire front of the house that became the de facto studio. If you would have gone to, to Jack's house at the time, and you'd walk in the front door, you would you would essentially be right in the middle of an array of like Jack's guitar pedals and amplifiers and like where he'd be uh, with Meg, maybe like another four or five feet from there. Um, Not in a very big space. It's like an L overall L shaped room. All right. Now that you have that mental image of all this stuff crammed into a small space, as soon as you walk into the door, here's a story Jack told back in 2017 when he was being honored by the producers and engineers wing of the recording Academy. So at one point during the album, we were doing a cover of Sunhouse's Death Letter, and um, I had went over to the mixing board, and Meg had done a, a, gave me the drum volume, and I had set it, and we pressed record, and turned around, and we started playing. And we're playing for about a minute, and Meg uh, stops and has this fear of God look in her face like this. She's completely frozen, and I'm still playing, and I don't understand what's going on. And I said, what? what? I stopped and said, what? And she didn't say anything. I didn't know what was going on. I turned around and there was a 300-pound drunk man standing behind me in my living room who had just been walking down the street and walked in to the house. So yeah, you can see how uh, unique the experience of recording to show was. But what about the music itself, though? 
you know, because the recording environment isn't the only thing that was different from the first record. The material was changing and evolving in a few ways, too. The one being that there was an entire concept, however loose, that De Still was built around. Jack had the idea, had the vision of De Still, and then recorded within that framework. And, and the, you know, the synthesis intended to be I'm trying to distill their music, day still, day still. That might not have been intentional on his end, but that's how I view it. The Dutch art movement of day still was trying to synthesize down to the simplest, most unornamental figures and colors, just primary colors and right angles and, and making art out of that. I think Jack took inspiration from that in regards to that's really, really similar to what we are trying to do with our music both in general, but also, I think, on a, on a micro level, somewhat specified to that, that album and those songs. In addition to that framework, uh, the nature of the songs were a little bit different, too. My overall impression of that album is that it is kind of slow, kind of dirgy, kind of introspective. When you think of songs like A Boy's Best Friend or Truth Doesn't Make a Noise or apple blossom even there's not really i don't think there's comparable songs on the white strips first album and i think there's that quote meg there's a quote from meg in regards to um i'm bound to pack it up i think she said man jack that really sounds like a lot of a lot like led zeppelin are you cool with that jackson yeah i'm cool with that okay (laughs) but even with all that it's not like the white stripes changed their sound entirely It wasn't all dirgy Led Zeppelin. In fact, there were some very direct connections to the first record, which was very much intentional on Jack's part. He was thinking ahead, and I think I mentioned this in the previous season where the White Stripes are going to do their first single, and and I was shocked that they wouldn't record Jimmy the Exploder as the first single. And Jack said, I'm saving it for the album. Like, what album, doofus? Like, no one's putting out albums. Um, and then whatever, six months later, some guy offers to do an album. I'm like, oh, good thing you didn't put that out on the seven inch. But even further from that, he had this, uh, I don't know if it was exclusively him or if Brian Muldoon helped years prior in the upholstery shop concoct an approach, but the whole fear of the sophomore slump, right? You know, you spend your entire life getting to your first album and then six months later, you're expected to do your second album. So Jack purposefully left off songs that were ready and could have gone on the first album for the second album. So that's your Let's Build a Home. That's Jumble Jumble. That's Why Can't You Be Nicer to Me. Um, all three of those were being played at like their earliest shows. Pretty, pretty long-standing entries in their catalog. By the way, if you got the Third Man Vault package for the self-titled record then you've probably already heard the initial recordings of those songs. But as a way to kind of lessen the gap between the two uh, albums, I was like, well, we'll, we'll save those and we'll re-record them for, for the second album. Having those extra songs from the first album didn't just give Jack and Meg the ability to make a record sooner or even have a stronger product because they had tracks that had already been taken to the woodshed. They also helped kind of balance things out and even create a tension in the record when paired with the other upbeat tracks like Hello Operator, Death Letter, and You're Pretty Good Looking for a Girl. 
the balance is, is tenuous between those fast rocking songs and those slow, um, I'm bound to pack it up, Sister Do You Know My Name, A Boy's Best Friend. Like those songs, as will be kind of exhibited on this vault package. The vault package Blackwell's talking about right there is the accompaniment to Distill, which you only have until April 30th to get your hands on. So you better head to thirdmanrecords.com right now and make it happen. There's this demo tape that I never knew existed that I I dug up, and it's like, oh, wow, here's it all laid out. Here's the slow Deshtil songs, the demos, Jack talking about the different chord progressions and all that shit, and it's all right here. That's A minor, G, C, and D. That's called Truth Doesn't Make a Noise. So that's pretty much that as far as the songs and the recording of Deshtil, which was happening in the early part of 2000. Yeah, so they mix they mix at Ghetto. Uh, the It seems to go pretty quickly in terms of, this is like in March, I think. It's pretty much done by March or early April, and then it comes out beginning of June. Similar to the first album, the actual release of Distill was pretty inauspicious. That said, Blackwell could tell that the record had at least a, a little more cachet in the eyes of the label. They made promo posters. Promo post, you could send the album cover art with a, a blank strip underneath it that says the White Stripes will be appearing at EJ's Lounge in Portland. Uh, I was looking at these stuff. I was like, why didn't they do a distill record release show poster? Like, they did a record release show, but they didn't do a poster. And it was like, Jack was super hands-on making posters for all the local shows at that point. And I was like, ah, it's the first time there was there was uh, pre-printed poster blanks available. So I was like, oh, we probably just put those up all around town. We didn't didn't go to Kinko's and spend the money. It wasn't something that you'd see every day for a local band. That was a little bit of a a little a status symbol, I would think, a little bit. How much 500 posters cost? Like $20 or nothing. Like, looking at it through the lens of now, like, you need posters? Yeah, fine. What, why'd you bother me? Just <laughs> make the posters. Posters notwithstanding, uh, the album didn't attract a ton of attention outside of Detroit immediately. But, you know, the main point of touring back then was to get the word out about your album so people would go to the record store and buy it. And as we've covered in the last couple of episodes, they did a pretty good job of that for uh, being a tiny band with no meaningful support. I mean, you saw how that West Coast tour led to the Slater-Kinney East Coast tour. And then that tour led to something pretty interesting. Rolling Stone magazine. I had started recently working at Rolling Stone and was on, like, just doing news reporting and a lot of stuff just about mainstream artists and just a lot more bandwidth was taken up um, than I was used to by that. That's former Rolling Stone writer Jenny Ellescue, who you heard from earlier this season and who was living in New York during that Slater-Kinney tour. So I wasn't as, like, versed in all the cool uh, up-and-coming bands on Sympathy for the Record Industry or whatever. <laughs> but I did go to see, I did go to see Slater-Kinney, um, and I got there early, which is a tried-and-true way, it turns out, for finding awesome stuff. So, yeah, I just kind of saw them by accident, um, really, and, uh, you know, thought they were amazing immediately, not, you know, realizing how, you know, how significant— it was at the time. I would have a whole bunch of pieces, you know, in any given issue, like of like, you know, shorter things. I probably hadn't even written my first cover story yet. So I would write record reviews of just things I suggested or they'd assign me something in that after I saw that show, I found out 
uh, that they had just released to steal, I think. I tried to, I don't remember the exact date, but yeah, I guess I just, I, I request, I requested a copy of the album and pitched it, uh, for review and, and, uh, and yeah, that was that. Simple enough, right? Jenny seeing the band during the New York run directly leads to a review in Rolling Stone, which would have been pretty surprising at the time, since back then you kind of needed some serious buzz or a little label magic to get some dedicated space on the page. So it's kind of a big deal. Uh, But back to Jenny. What did she actually think about the record? I'd seen the gig, so I knew the songs already. And I mean, I knew they played some of the songs from the album for sure. I recognized some of them immediately. Uh, I was really super into, I mean, I was like super into the show. It was definitely one of those moments where I was like, holy, you know, like what, oh my God, what is this? Who is this? What's happening? You know? Um, So I was, I, I went into it pretty pumped into listening to the album and then worked in a cubicle at Rolling Stone at that time and just listened to the album over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah, it really seemed to resonate with her. It was my zone, even though, like I said, I was I was maybe a little less aware of stuff than I had been. Like, I was, you know, into indie in the 90s. It reminded me of Royal Trucks and the Blues Explosion. Like, immediately it was, like, in a sweet spot for me. I knew, I, you know, so I was super into it, but I wasn't just, like, you know, it didn't, it didn't blow my mind in terms of uh, sounding, like, super novel just because... You know, I was into the the sort of earlier Jonathan Fire Eater, like late '90s kind of garage rock revival stuff. But I appreciated how I appreciated how how artful and like interesting a take on that kind of um, on that on that general zone it was. You know, immediately it was like it clearly innovative. I thought the execution of it, like, was really interesting. The minimalism of it was really interesting to me. And, yeah, the childlike approach or sort of, like, surreal take on, yeah, on a child's view. I also like stuff that's a little twee, and there was something a little twee about it that it's it's got an innocence to it. And I don't want to break the So while it might have taken a few months, uh, the record was getting out there in the world in a real way. And that's not all. The Rolling Stone review would lead to another feature shortly after. We had a feature we would do, you know, once or twice a year that was, uh, you know, artists to watch or like 10 artists to watch or something like that. And I wrote about the White Stripes and interviewed Jack over the phone for that um, around that same time. I got to talk to Jack on the phone about his his work in in furniture, in the furniture business before that, which was really cool. I had already reviewed the record and was already a fan of what they were doing, but having him kind of explain like the designy approach or like the visual kind of element of it made the sort of minimalism of what the White Stripes were doing at that point even more interesting or, or make more sense in a larger context. Remember how I said you needed a little magic to even get a review in the magazine? This 10-to-watch package was like an order of magnitude above that. The White Stripes ended up featured alongside Shakira, Nelly Furtado, Jada Kiss, and Pete Yorn, among others, all of whom at that time were styled as, quote-unquote, up-and-comers. 
And just about everybody on that list had a big machine behind them. Hell, the only other act without any kind of major label support on that list was Sia Rose. And they already had a platinum album in Iceland by that point. So you can see clearly something's happening. Words getting around to one extent or another. But you know, it's not like they're traveling the world or something wild like that. Not yet, anyway. That's next time. Because that's all we've got for this episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Mark Charles, Cochin Tashiro, and Melissa Locker. And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. Biggest thanks of all, though, goes to the White Stripes themselves, Jack and Meg White, because without them, none of this would be possible. Speaking of which, if you want to get an even deeper look into the life of the band around 2000, you can head to thirdmanrecords.com to pick up their latest vault package, the accompaniment to Distill, celebrating the 20th anniversary of the White Stripes sophomore album. Got a couple more days, so you better get on it. Oh, and we've also put together companion playlists for seasons one and two of Striped, so you can hear a lot of the bands and songs mentioned in the show and maybe discover your next big musical obsession. You can find those playlists on your preferred streaming platform or by perusing the Third Man social channels. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next time. I remember, I think, I don't think I was there for any of the recording off the top of my head. I like classically think I was only ever there for get behind me, Satan and no, any, no other recording sessions, which still irks me to this day as, as after the fact archivist should have been there. But at the time I remember thinking that if, if it wasn't the recording of it, there was like a early, it was a rehearsal run through or whatever of them doing a boy's best friend, which is probably the slowest, droniest, um, you know, kind of emotional song. I don't know if emotional is the term. And at the time, in the room, being 100% like moved, blown away, like feeling the, the crush of that slide guitar was powerful it was like wrapped around you like like a tight vest and didn't feel that on the recording like it it did not translate to to the eventual recording and that kind of bummed me out you know like i i still have that that memory and that emotion in my head but the recording doesn't doesn't live up to it um you know these are very unique problems to have I, I understand that, and people are like, fuck you, what are you complaining about? But if you love A Boy's Best Friend, it was even better in the rehearsal that I got to hear it at, laying on the couch with my eyes closed and, and feeling the way more, I, I don't know, in my mind, it just feels like a Spaceman 3 song.
like and how big and how wide it is uh, in that room. Hearing the sound of the room, not just what was the microphone was capturing, you know, because there's a different, you know, there's different overtones, there's different resonance. Um, yeah, 100%. You know, they weren't using SM58 betas. Beta 58. Beta 58. Beta, 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 lambda, gave, delta, delta. 